Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host for the episode, Dr. Doug Ray from Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Lauren Rowland and Ed Kwan. Dr. Rowland is an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where she was a resident, and Dr. Rowland attended Emory University for her rhinology fellowship. Dr. Kwan is the co-director of the University of California Irvine Comprehensive Skull Base Program and director of the Endoscopic Skull Base Fellowship. And he completed his fellowship in rhinology and skull base surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll be discussing their recent publication, Diagnosis, Prognosticators, and Management of Acute Invasive Fungal Rhinosinusitis, a multidisciplinary consensus statement and evidence-based review with recommendations that was published in the most recent September issue of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. Welcome, Lauren Ed. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. So we'll jump right into it. I'm going to give a little bit of an info, in, uh, intro to your paper, which is excellent. And I think it's going to be super helpful for those of us who deal with this very challenging clinical issue. And then we'll we'll just we'll just chat. So acute invasive fungal sinusitis, as we all know, is a pretty deadly infection of the paranasal sinuses, and it's caused mainly by immunosuppression or poorly controlled diabetes. And because of its aggressive nature and high fatality rate, the disease really needs to be identified and treated quickly. So we as otolaryngologists are typically at the front lines of dealing with this aggressive disease. So this is the first paper to review the literature and develop evidence-based recommendations on the diagnosis, prognosis, and management of AIFS. So Lauren and Ed, how did you guys get interested in this topic? Yeah, um, so I'm interested in IFS in general. I try to study it um, at a translational level, and I think it's very challenging because every institution, even big institutions, have a very low N overall, so it's a rare disease. And then even when we do have big institutions or multi-institutional studies, the population is very um, variable, heterogeneous. So people have IFS for all different reasons of immunosuppression, and then they're all very different in terms of the medications they're on. And so it's really hard to study this. And so I think when you're trying to study a problem, the first step is to look at what's already out there and um, see what you can find. I think we're all, we all sort of dread this consult because the patients often don't do well, and it's sort of um, a difficult consult. And we also don't really have good recommendations or guidelines on exactly what to do. And so um, they can be really challenging. And so we were hoping to sort of improve that guidance by looking at the evidence that already exists. Just to add to what Lauren was talking about, when we were reviewing um, just what is already out there in terms of summary statements in terms of this disease, you know, looking at ICAR, looking at EPOS, there really isn't much dedicated to this topic and then personally for me, I saw a surge of cases during the COVID pandemic and it got a lot more worldwide, uh, worldwide recognition. So then, you know, we really don't know much about it. So, you know, we came together as a group of like-minded people to really try to figure out what is what exactly is out there. Um, and this is where we are. Yeah. And, and so when, when looking at your paper, you have a lot of very experienced um, rhinologists on your, on your paper. So can, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you picked those rhinologists, those authors, and then and just discuss briefly the, sort of the methodology of your paper. Yeah, so it's formatted like a mini ICAR of sorts, um, and the whole idea is based off of the Rudnick and Smith 
evidence-based review of recommendations guidelines. And it really came together when uh, Lauren, who I've known and been following her research, and then Chris Slay and Ian Humphreys, who've also uh, been publishing and talking on this topic, and myself uh, came together and discussed creating this project as part of the editorial team. And we invited uh, an international and multidisciplinary representative group of uh, specialists who have clinical or academic interests in IFS. We really wanted to look at this project and then the literature and try to fill those gaps. Uh, the methodology is very similar to ICAR as we talked about. We created a topic outline and then we invited the authors based on the metrics that we discussed. You know, we looked at uh, experts in otolaryngology, infectious disease, ophthalmology, among many others. Uh, they performed systematic reviews, which were then serially reviewed by two editorial team members. And then finally, we assembled it all together. Uh, so it was a multi-year effort, but, you know, it's a labor of love that hopefully will inform and help our patients going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think the meat of this paper and where I want to spend a lot of our discussion is just in your results and your recommendations and your discussion. So I'd, I'd kind of like to go through each portion of the of the paper and what you looked at specifically um, in, 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 in your results and then sort of your recommendations. So so to start with, um, one of the things your paper looks at is sort of the most prevalent findings and symptoms um, and the time course of AIFS. So can you summarize uh, to us as otolaryngologists sort of what we should be looking at in terms of the most common concerning signs and symptoms of the disease, uh, where we should have where we, we should have red flags raised, and then also sort of the time course when we should really get the ball rolling with with this. One of the most challenging aspects of IFS is that it can present either very obviously, which sometimes is too late, or very subtly, and it could be very confusing because you may not think it may be something that needs to be intervened upon immediately. And a lot of times we as otolaryngologists, as you mentioned before, Doug, are called to consult on these inpatients uh, pretty early on because of vague sinonasal complaints like facial pressure, nasal obstruction, things that wouldn't make you think the first thing really is going to be IFS. But it's important to put that together in context with the clinical picture to make it a more obvious assessment of the patient. So patients who present with cranial nerve palsy, such as facial numbness, orbital symptoms, or if they're on exam, they have areas of frank necrosis. We always tell residents to always look in the palate. So look, doing a complete physical exam with endoscopy is really important. And the reality is when we assess the literature, there really isn't a reliable predictor of what constitutes AIFS based on timing and duration of symptoms? We've, we've all seen the time of the patients that present really rapidly and progress really rapidly, but then we've seen some more inland cases. So currently, I think what is necessary is a reclassification of some sorts. And this is, I know that uh, Lauren, for example, has been working on that and would be really helpful to see what comes out of that in the future. That's really helpful, Ed. So in your study, you also looked at lab studies and tissue diagnosis, as well as biomarkers used in the diagnosis of AFS. So, so based on your article, do you recommend cultures or including PCR cultures to help with making the diagnosis of AIFS? Do you think they're helpful, the cultures? I think based on the evidence when we reviewed it, tissue cultures can be helpful to determine the offending organism and to abstain sensitivities. Um, although this largely depends just on 
morphologic examination. And then cultures are most helpful really when patients have, you know, a limited ability to tolerate specific antifungal agents, or if there's the suspicion of atypical uh, organisms like non-aspergillus, non-mucormycosis. And then TCR, on the other hand, is faster and does add an additional layer of diagnostic power with limited additional risk, uh, additional risk or cost, uh, which is why we gave it a recommendation in the review to obtain whenever possible. So, so we're going to, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, Ed, because we're going to talk about biopsies in a few minutes because I'm kind of mm-hmm. going through your paper, but would you, for just to facilitate the diagnosis, would you, you'd order your cultures, your PCR cultures based on your tissue biopsies, I assume, correct? Uh, yes. Okay. And so what's interesting is I, I had never, um, until I read your paper, sort of thought about serum biomarkers in in diagnosis and sort of also as prognostic uh, indicators for AIFS. Your paper kind of really educated me about this as something potentially that we can do when we're working a patient up. So in summary, what what biomarkers do you think are helpful when we when we have a suspicion of AIFS? And and so which biomarkers should we order and 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 why? Yeah, and this is one of the really cool parts of working in a multidisciplinary project. But I'm actually exactly in the same boat as you, Doug, where these biomarkers weren't really thought of, but I always see my infectious disease colleagues ordering them, and um, they may be doing so at m- many other medical centers. Uh, so in the review, we covered beta-D glucan and galactomannan, which are really fungal cell wall components as serum biomarkers. Um, they're pretty supplementary as based on the literature. They don't really replace the gold standard of getting a tissue diagnosis. And then we classified a couple of prognostic biomarkers such as absolute neutrophil count or ANC and also glucose metrics. And these are really targeted to looking at uh, patients who are neutropenic or diabetic who are at risk for IFS. And they kind of give some indication of the extent of immunosuppression or the extent of uh, risk, and at the very least gives us a starting point of how to manage the systemic disorder. Since these are things that you can follow and intervene on over time, we actually would recommend ordering these before or at the time of diagnosis and then training them over time to kind of be a surrogate for monitoring effects of treatment. So how often would you would you reorder the biomarkers as, as you're treating the patient? Yeah, and so for the, so for diabetic patients, you would trend the sugars until they stabilize in a normal way. And you certainly would get one before at the onset of diagnosis. Uh, neutropenia, I think it really just depends on whether they're going to recover or you're going to need some type of other agents to help them recover. Um, I think it's really still based on clinical judgment. There's not any set uh, time interval of recommendation. And then at some point, you know, when you follow patients by clinical exam or uh, endoscopy or imaging, which Lauren's going to talk a little bit about later, you're going to be able to see if the disease is going to stabilize or is it still at risk for progression. Obviously, you know, those of us, almost all of us during our training and then, uh, you know, as, as on-call otolaryngologists, whether in academic or private practice, we we approach these patients and, the, and one of the first things we're going to do is nasal endoscopy and tissue bi- biopsies, which are obviously essential making the diagnosis. Um so what should we be looking for specifically on our nasal endoscopy that should alert us to AIFS? Yeah, so based on the literature that we reviewed, we can say that we do recommend endoscopy as 
part of the workup. And um, like you've both said, it's kind of part of our, our routine physical exam. The endoscopy is helpful because there's a low risk of harm to the patient. It's something that we routinely do. Um, the challenge is, is that it's not a very sensitive test, um, but it is a specific test, meaning you might not be able to see everything on endoscopy, especially in an unoperated patient, but the findings will be specific. So if you see something abnormal, it is likely to be a problem. Um, and by that, we mean pale mucosa, necrotic mucosa. Um, unfortunately, the easiest places to see are, of course, the turbinates and the septum, but you can't necessarily see um, other places of concern. In terms of um, biopsy, I think this is a challenging um, topic because we kind of like the concept of bedside biopsy. It can avoid um, surgery or going to the OR under general anesthesia potentially. But based on the literature, we've sort of graded it as an option um, because there are some, some issues with bedside biopsy. It's possible to have false positives and false negatives. Um, in terms of false positives, there is, you know, we all have exposure to fungus. There could be fungus in the nose. And when you have a limited biopsy, it's hard for pathologists to tell if there's invasion, if that's just sort of fungus nearby, um, because you'll have a very small piece of tissue. Um, in terms of false negatives, you could be biopsying the wrong location um, because it's very hard to biopsy an awake patient. And then um, other issues with bedside biopsy is that you could, of course, have bleeding. So many of these patients have low platelets, and this could quickly turn into a consult for IFS, rule out, and then turn into a consult for epistaxis. And uh -huh. so um, there, are, there are still issues here. So Lauren, let's say you get um, consulted on a patient with a fever, they're um, profoundly immunosuppressed, neutropenic, and you look, you have the resident go, and then you actually look, and, and endoscopically, there's no abnormal tissues. Do you just take a random biopsy, or do you just kind of come back in a day and, and just take another look? So I don't take um, random biopsies. I, at this point, you know, um, I used to have, when I had trouble getting OR time, sometimes I'd be more in favor of trying to do bedside biopsies. I think now if I have concern, I just push for OR unless there's a bedside biopsy that I think is going to be helpful and it's in a place that um, is um, feasible. So if a patient has inferior turbinate or um, you know, middle terminate that's very accessible um, or septum that's, you know, anterior. I think those are places that are reasonable to do um, a bedside biopsy if it looks really, you know, concerning to you. But I also have had challenges with um, pathology, noting that when we get tissue, it gets really crushed in our instruments and it looks necrotic and it's hard to tell if it's fungal necro necrosis or if it's um, necrosis from, you know, from manipulation. Um, so I don't do just a random biopsy. I don't think um, that would be as helpful as when you actually find something that looks concerning. So would you, so in a patient with fever, neutropenia, you know, we get these consults all the time and sometimes you see something that's concerning and sometimes you don't. What would push you to take a patient to the OR who at the bedside nasal endoscopy looked pretty normal on their exam? Yeah, so I'd be thinking about, you know, other clinical signs and symptoms. As we discussed, that's challenging because people don't always have um, those terrible signs. Um, but obviously, if there was anything very concerning or like cranial nerve um, changes, I would be worried about that. The other thing is imaging, of course. And so 
Um, these patients often have the imaging prior to consult, or sometimes they'll just have a CT, but not an MRI. Um, but we often are, you know, heavily relying on imaging to find potential IFS in places that our scope, you know, can't see. Lauren, you just did the perfect segue into my next question. So based on your paper, should we order a CT and an MRI or should we order both for these patients? Yeah, we recommend both. And that's what um, I currently recommend at, at our hospital. So CT, just like any sinus case, is going to be helpful if you get a CT sinus um, sort of to use for navigation. On CT, obviously, you can see uh, bony landmarks. And if you have advanced disease, you can see bony erosion. The MRI is really helpful because it is more sensitive than CT. There's still challenges with both modalities, but the benefit of MRI is you can look for loss of contrast enhancement. So you're looking to see if there's tissue that, you know, sinonasal tissue or mucosa should enhance with contrast. So if it's not, that is suggestive that the tissue is not well perfused or it is dead or dying. And that's concerning for IFS. So the next part of your paper I wanted to discuss briefly is we 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 know that AIFS is is, is represents a surgical emergency, um, and and we're going to talk a little bit about what you advocate for for a surgical approach because I think historically we've all treated this disease surgically. But are there any situations that you wouldn't advocate for surgery and opt for just medical therapy? We do think of IFS as a surgical emergency, and I think. One of the challenges with the word emergency is we were trying to look at, you know, how um, emergent does this need to be in terms of timeline? Is this, you know, must you do this in one hour, um, three hour surgery, um, et cetera. And that was something that we did try to look at, but had difficulty based on studies because studies define early versus late um, in sort of variable ways. So it's really hard to combine studies and look at that. Also, um, if you can imagine patients that look really terrible on the exam that have really advanced disease are probably the ones who are going to be taken the fastest. And then that sort of skews the data because those patients might do worse. So we don't actually know, you know, what is the um, true amount of time that's sort of ideal for taking these patients. There's, you want to go fast, but you don't want to go um, without your workup, your platelets, you know, all of your imaging, your team, et cetera. We generally say that, you know, surgery and medical therapy together is what is recommended. Um, the situations in which you wouldn't do surgery would be those situations in which a patient is you know, too ill for surgery, um, doesn't want surgery, sort of after you've discussed all the options or if you think it, it wouldn't be worthwhile based on um, sort of the extension of disease. But in general, um, we say that this should be approached surgically if the patient is medically stable for surgery and then that medical therapy would also be started. So it's talking a little bit more and delving into surgery. Um, can you summarize sort of the differences in outcome? I mean, you know, I think all of us treat, uh, trained in the area of endoscopic approaches to this, um, but but there would be um, sometimes a need for an open approach as well. But can you can you sort of summarize the differences and outcomes that you've seen in terms of an endoscopic versus an open approach? Yeah. So based on the literature, you know, again, it's a little hard to study because patients that have open surgery, sometimes it's because they had more extensive disease. And so that might be why they're having this sort of bigger surgeries and they overall do worse. Um, but in general, we say there's an option for extended and open surgery, but we would um, prefer endoscopic over open if, if you can get 
get control of disease endoscopically. Um, there is a role, of course, for open maxillectomy um, and uh, sort of open extended approaches if you can achieve control of disease, um, as long as you counsel the patients on what that's going to be and what sort of the um, follow-up surgeries might be, um, whether that's a reconstruction or maybe even just an obturator. Um, but it, it's sort of something that would need to be discussed uh, with the patient and the family. And obviously, if, if the um, disease is clearly spread outside of the paranasal sinuses, either in the orbit or the palate, then you're looking at a combined potential endoscopic and open approach. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So, so Lauren, should we always plan for a second trip to the OR with these patients? That is um, a super challenging question. There's not great data on um, surveillance, as you can imagine, because I do think people are um, sort of implementing different surveillance plans nowadays, but we don't have great follow-up data on how patients did based on their surveillance. So at this point, we uh, do recommend going back to the OR when clinically indicated. And so that's, you know, sort of up to your judgment um, because you do want to have complete removal of disease. And so that's going to be based sort of on um, all of your surveillance measures, which would include any repeat imaging, um, looking, watching for clinical signs and changes, and then um, bedside endoscopy, if you can get a good view of the areas that you're worried about. Um, imaging is hard. I will say it is something that I do um, within a week after the first surgery, but post-op MRI is hard to um, interpret um, in these patients because that loss of contrast enhancement that could be tissue necrosis could also be look like other post-op changes or even packing material. So switching a little bit back to the medical therapy. So I, I, I will say as a resident, a lot of the new medical therapies for especially the immunosuppressed patients were just coming to the fore. And it, it seemed to me that these were sort of game changers in helping these patients survive uh, the disease. So um, let's first talk about for sort of systemic antifungals. Obviously, we're typically ordering these. What would you recommend based on the type of infection for these types of patients? Yeah, so initially, um, we'll usually be recommending amphotericin, the liposomal version, because it's less toxic. Um, and that's going to be usually started, you know, that's sort of a challenge of do you start before you know that you for sure have a diagnosis of IFS? Um, generally, we would say that's an option, but we would lean towards um, starting medication earlier rather than later. The data that we had to support that is mostly based on fungal um, pulmonary disease, not on fungal sinusitis, um, but it is recommended to start amphotericin early rather than later um, mortality is improved. Um, usually in these patients, they're getting amphotericin um, IV for a couple of weeks before transitioning to an oral medication, which can be um, guided by the cultures that you've obtained in the operating room. And so most of that discussion is obviously with ID, um, but we did look at the literature for, you know, duration of antifungals, something that always comes up with my patients who are doing well, they want to get off the antifungals because they do have side effects. And that's another challenge or limitation of what we um, saw in the literature is that we don't have great guidelines for when you can stop antifungals. Most people are on um, oral antifungals for three to six months and some even longer. And then shifting gears a little bit, there's a lot of other medical therapies that seem to really improve these patients' outcomes, not necessarily antifungals. 
Can you talk a little bit, your paper kind of reviews these. Can you talk a little bit about what these therapies are and, and, and how they've changed the, the patient's survival rates? Yeah, so actually there's sort of conflicting data on some of them. There's granulocyte stimulating factors, sort of the leukocyte stimulating factors, interferon. Um, I think the newest one that's sort of gaining attention is T-cell therapy, where you could actually target aspergillus or whatever fungi you are interested in. And these have been trialed in some patient groups, but the studies have been a little bit challenging. Some studies have shown improved survival, others have not. But so I think this is sort of the next step that I'm interested in is how can we target a patient's immunodeficiency, that specific immunodeficiency to improve their survival? So everybody's immune compromised, but patients are all different. And so should we be thinking about these patients differently and not treating them all the same? And I think that's sort of the future, hopefully, of IFS is, you know, improved survival from targeting patients in a more individual way. And that is really interesting, Lauren. And, and it kind of leads me directly into my next question for you, which is, because I know you do a lot of research in this area. So um, there are several areas, as you as, as you all both point out in your paper, that are related to AFS where consensus is sort of lacking due to a, a deficiency of good clinical evidence. So can you just talk a little bit about the critical studies that you think are required to improve our manage of AFS going forward, the, the studies that you think, the clinical studies out there that could be done to help us manage the disease better? Yeah. And then I think Ed will probably have some thoughts too. We have a lot in the paper about where we see gaps in knowledge. And um, and so, you know, obviously there's many areas where there's more work that could be done and we can improve our level of evidence to help us figure out guidelines for management and surveillance. Other things that um, I've been interested in are, you know, can we improve our biomarkers for diagnosis um, and recovery. So could we have better biomarkers in the blood that can actually tell us what's going on in the mucosa so that we don't have to be trying to do bedside biopsies or taking these patients to the operating room um, who are you know, really sick? And then could those same biomarkers be used to tell us if patients are recovering or if they can come off antifungals or what their prognosis is? I think that would be um, a really big game changer for us in terms of you know, not having to operate on these really sick patients. Another frustration for me is often um, imaging sensitivity and specificity. As good as MRI is, it's pretty hard in this disease. And so I think that's another um, area of potential research is, you know, can we improve our diagnostic skills um, in terms of imaging, whether that's through a different modality or just improving our understanding of MRI findings. And then lastly, as I've previously mentioned, I think We've all been very focused on neutrophils because that's a test that we get that, you know, is available to us in the blood, but there's probably other cell types that we should be focusing on that we can maybe be targeting or, you know, transfusing into patients that would help them target their specific immunodeficiency and maybe improve their survival. And I think that's another area of research that we could probably partner with the BMT or oncology population or physicians and probably make a difference there. I think just to add to what Lauren had mentioned, um, there's a pretty directly understand the pathophysiology of this condition. Why does it happen? Why? How does it? How is it that the fungus decides to suddenly invade vessels, invade tissue? Where a lot of times you have patients with fungus falls uh, for years, and patients not, you know, don't even have symptoms. Um, and the other thing, of course, as I talked about earlier, is also reclassification, which is is everything actually AFS or is it a different variant where it's a little bit more indolent? 
Um, so there's a lot of work to be done in that area as well. We also don't really know exactly how to best define uh, intervals of things like surveillance, when to go for surgery. I think it's going to take a little bit more granular data. And uh, what's really exciting about this as we work through this process is when we work with our colleagues in different disciplines and kind of see how they think, we actually are able to change the way that we think as well. And then to look at things from a different angle and then to tackle it from looking at different sides of the, the whole picture itself. So just learning from our infectious disease colleagues, where there's a lot of really strong evidence that they look at for medical therapy and cultures, looking at the ophthalmology treatments, looking at pathology tests, uh, radiology. So it's always been a, you know, a gap in many areas of our field where there's a lot of multidisciplinary care. Well, that is that was a great discussion, Ed Lauren, and I really appreciate you joining me. I, I I think we were able to cover a ton, but I feel like there's just so much more that we could have talked about. So I I, I really congratulate you and your collaborators on a really important publication that I think is going to help all of us clinicians um, treat a really aggressive and challenging disease with a very high mortality rate. And so I uh, congratulations on your publication and, and thanks so much for taking a little bit of time with me this evening. So I also want to thank our Scope It Out listeners for joining us. For now, this is Doug Ray for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology signing off. We'll see you soon. Thank you.